Have you ever wondered why a certain house in your neighborhood has stood abandoned for years or even decades? Or maybe you've heard of a terrible murder in your town, but you've never known exactly where it happened. Welcome to the Morbid Tourism Podcast, where we talk about cases that may have happened closer to home than you thought. Warning, this episode contains descriptions of violence, manipulative behavior, spousal abuse, and sexual content. This podcast is not recommended for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Last week, I started talking about the case of missing woman Susan Powell, who was reported missing in 2009 after her husband took their two young sons on a last-minute camping trip in the middle of December in the Utah wilderness. If you haven't listened to episode 23 yet, please go back and listen to that one before you listen to this episode. Quick recap of where we left off. Susan Powell had been missing since Monday, December 7th, after her two young children weren't dropped off at daycare and no one could get a hold of her or her husband. Her husband, Josh Powell, had been questioned by the police on two separate occasions and could not account for where his wife, Susan, had gone. He had claimed that he took their two sons on a camping trip, leaving at about midnight on Sunday night and in the middle of a snowstorm before returning after 6 p.m. on Monday and missing work himself. His young son, Charlie, had told child advocates that his mother had come along on the camping trip with them, but that she had stayed, quote, where the crystals are, end quote. Although there seemed to be mounting evidence against Josh Powell, he was released by the police after being questioned for a second time. Feeling like it was only a matter of time before he was arrested and charged, Josh headed to the Salt Lake City Airport and rented a car. Over the next 16 hours, Josh put 800 miles on the rental car, meaning that he was driving pretty much constantly throughout that whole time, although exactly where he went is still unknown. I also want to mention something else. Throughout this time, Josh's younger brother, Mike, who was an army veteran and lived near Puyallup, wasn't heard from by his family, friends, or anyone. In fact, from Friday, December 4th to Saturday, December 12th, no one saw or heard from Mike at all. Now, I looked it up, and the distance from Salt Lake City to Puyallup is 851 miles, and about a 12-13 to hour drive. It's now believed that after picking up the rental car, Josh went to the location where he left Susan's body and put it into the rental car. It seems likely, and is my personal opinion, that after retrieving her body, he drove halfway to Puyallup, met with his brother Mike, transferred Susan's body into Mike's car, and then Josh drove back to Salt Lake City and returned the rental car. On December 22nd, Mike sold his car to a scrapyard in Pendleton, Oregon for $100. This is one of those situations where everything might have turned out differently if police had tailed Josh to see where he had gone during this period, but the reality is that they didn't. After this incident, police attempted to search the area where Josh said he had camped with the boys, but 
due to the inclement weather and the vast isolation of the location itself, they didn't find anything. Because Susan had been the main breadwinner for the family, Josh's funds quickly ran dry. It was also clear that he would be unable to take care of the boys by himself, and although his sister Jennifer was helping, it wasn't enough. By early January, just a month after Susan had gone missing, Josh packed up the house into a U-Haul, assisted by his brother Mike. In a particularly sickening move, Josh shouted out to press that had gathered outside of his home, quote, I just loaded Susan's head into the truck, end quote. Josh drove the U-Haul to Washington and moved the family to his father Steve's house in Puyallup. Quick reminder about Steve Powell. After Susan and Josh had gotten married, they lived with Steve. Steve became completely infatuated with Susan and was convinced that she was also in love with him. He wrote her love songs, gave her massages, and took vulnerable pictures of her without her knowledge. Josh Powell knew about most of this, and yet he still decided that his father's house would be the best place for him and his two young sons. Susan's parents, Chuck and Judy Cox, were somewhat relieved that the boys would be closer to them, but also found everything that Josh was doing to be extremely suspicious. Josh became more and more closed off to the Coxes, limiting their ability to see the boys and becoming more and more elusive. Steve Powell didn't do anything to help ease their minds. Instead, he installed a super tall privacy fence around the backyard of the home and installed more than a dozen cameras on the property. Josh told the Coxes that they would have to get approval from him before coming over to the house for a visit and made it next to impossible for them to see their grandchildren. Eventually, Josh was able to secure a restraining order against his in-laws, who in return got a restraining order against him. The following weeks and months would only continue to be frustrating for the Cox family and for Susan's friends. Over time, they accepted that Susan was likely no longer alive, but they remained hopeful that her body would be found eventually and Josh would face justice. They began holding candlelight vigils for Susan, and her parents appeared on countless TV programs to ensure that the search for Susan remained headline news. They even started a foundation in her name. Josh continued on basically like nothing had happened at all. By April, most of the snow had melted in Utah and where Josh had claimed to have gone camping. So investigators began to search for any evidence that they could find in the vast desert wilderness. A body was found, though it was determined not to be Susan. Over and over, the Coxes begged West Valley police to arrest Josh, telling them that he would never admit to the crimes freely and that they feared for the safety of their grandchildren. But the police would only respond that they were building a case and that the Coxes needed to remain patient. On September 22, 2011, police officers pulled up to Steve Powell's home with an arrest warrant, but it was not for Josh Powell. Steve Powell, Josh's father, was placed under arrest and charged with possession of child pornography and 14 counts of voyeurism. Steve had allegedly taken photos of women without their knowledge many times, 
including photos of his neighbor's two young girls aged eight and nine while they were in the bath and he had taken these photos through a bathroom window. After Steve's arrest, Charlie and Brayden were taken from the house and placed into foster care, with the plan being to eventually place them with Chuck and Judy Cox. A few days after Steve's arrest, the Coxes went to a custody hearing and were met in the courtroom with a defiant and determined Josh Powell. The judge heard about the troves of pornography found inside of Steve Powell's home and the state of disarray that they were forced to live in. The judge ruled that Charlie and Brayden should live with their maternal grandparents, Chuck and Judy Cox. The ruling seemed to break Josh even more than he already was. The boys, though, Charlie and Brayden, seemed overjoyed to be with their grandparents, but they started displaying some odd behavior. Both boys seemed to strongly dislike clothes, and they would often disrobe and play naked together. They also would take off their pajamas and try to sleep naked, and when Chuck and Judy asked them about why they didn't want to wear their pajamas, the boys told them that they had always slept naked and had usually slept in the same bed as their father, who was also naked. Judy and Chuck Cox were horrified by what they were hearing and became more determined than ever to keep Josh away from the boys for their own protection. Around this time, police made a discovery at a salvage yard in Pendleton, Oregon. Although some parts had been stripped, they were able to recover Mike Powell's vehicle that he had tried to scrap just after Susan went missing and when Josh rented a car and had gone on a long road trip by himself. When they brought a cadaver dog to inspect the vehicle, the dog alerted near the trunk, meaning that there was the scent of decomposition there. When police attempted to ask Mike about the car, he said that he had sold it and that it had been scrapped for parts. When police told him that they had the car in their custody and that a dog had smelled decomposition, he seemed to panic. He started to stammer and be at a complete loss for words, but still no arrest was made. Although the boys were now living with the Coxes, Josh continued to fight to regain custody and was able to win supervised visitation with the boys. Child Protective Services provided a caseworker, a woman named Elizabeth Griffin Hall, and she would be responsible for transporting the boys from the Coxes to Josh and supervise them while they were with Josh for a few hours before then again returning them to the Coxes. Josh was not permitted to have the boys come over to Steve's house due to the inappropriate nature of what was found inside of the home and where Josh had continued to live after Steve's arrest. It was clear to Josh that he would never regain custody of his sons while he lived in Steve's home, even though Steve was no longer living there. He was in jail. So in October 2011, Josh rented a three-bedroom house just a few miles away in Puyallup. The home, which has a kind of odd address, was located at 8119 189th Street Court East, and it was at the end of a quiet cul-de-sac. Josh paid about $1,100 a month in rent for the house. Josh created a makeshift playroom for the children in one of the bedrooms, and he kept the home relatively neat, though it was pretty sparsely furnished. 
Josh and the Coxes continued to battle out custody in court for the next few months while Mrs. Griffin Hall continued busing the children back and forth between the homes. Josh's visits with his children were usually planned out fairly well. Josh would usually have an activity for the boys to do while he was with them, which actually impressed Mrs. Griffin Hall, although she noticed that he was often stressed while with the boys and that he found it difficult not to talk poorly about the Coxes around them. Due to the investigation around Susan's disappearance, investigators had been monitoring Josh's computers and phone calls. In December of 2011, they uncovered several images of, quote, toon porn, essentially pornographic illustrations of cartoon characters on Josh's computers. They also found several images that seemed to be depicting incestuous sexual relations between parents and children. Although these images were discovered, investigators did not alert either Josh's attorney or the Cox's attorney, but they did alert a psychiatrist that had been assigned to evaluate Josh to help determine a proper visitation agreement. That doctor determined, based on the nature of the images, that Josh had inappropriate boundaries when it came to family members and sex, and that psychiatrist recommended that Josh go through a test to determine if he became aroused by certain topics, including incest and bestiality. On February 1st, 2012, Josh Powell and the Coxes went to court again for another custody hearing. Josh, who was unaware of what had been uncovered on his computer, was optimistic that he would regain custody of the boys and be able to take them home that day. But once the hearing started and the images were brought up, it became clear that Josh was wrong. The judge ruled that Josh's current visitation schedule would remain unchanged and that consideration of full custody would only be decided after Josh underwent a psychosexual evaluation, one that Josh himself likely knew he would fail. Three days after the hearing, on February 4th, 2012, Josh went to a gas station and filled two five-gallon containers with gasoline. The next morning, on February 5th, 2012, Mrs. Griffin Hall picked up Charlie and Brayden at around 11.30 a.m. from the Coxes for their scheduled visitation with Josh. The boys said their goodbyes to their grandparents and hopped in the car, just like normal. At around the same time, Josh sent several emails to family members and coworkers. They were short and read simply, I'm sorry, goodbye. Mrs. Griffin Hall pulled up to Josh's house a few minutes before noon. The boys were super excited to see their father, and they jumped out of the car ahead of Mrs. Griffin Hall and ran to Josh, who was standing in the front doorway of the home. Before Mrs. Griffin Hall could do anything, Josh pulled the boys inside the home, slammed the door, and locked it. Mrs. Griffin Hall kind of thought that maybe it was a mistake or a joke. She tried to open the front door and then found it locked and started banging on the door and yelling at Josh to open it. She then also tried the garage, the back doors, but all entrances to the house were locked. After a few minutes, she went back to her car to get her cell phone and dialed 911. 
She told the dispatcher that she was a court-appointed supervisor for child visitation and that Josh Powell had locked her out of the home during a supervised visit. The dispatcher didn't really seem to fully understand what was going on and the potential severity of the situation, even after Mrs. Griffin Hall told him that she smelled gasoline and wanted to back away from the house. Instead, the dispatcher told her that he would have the first available deputy contact her, but that it could be a while because they had to deal with life-threatening situations first. Eight minutes after Mrs. Griffin Hall dialed 911, Josh Powell's home exploded with so much force it blew part of the roof off. 911 was inundated with calls reporting the explosion. Firefighters and first responders made an effort to locate the home, but due to its odd address, had a little bit of trouble actually finding it. By the time they arrived at the house, there was no saving the home or the three people inside. After the fire was extinguished, the badly burned bodies of Charlie, Braden, and Josh Powell were discovered. An autopsy uncovered that Charlie and Braden's death were not caused only by the fire, but also from extensive injuries inflicted by an axe to the back of their heads and neck area. Still, evidence of smoke inhalation was found inside of their lungs, meaning that they were still alive when the fire was set. Although Josh had sent those short emails saying goodbye to some people, he left no note or anything else that would explain why he had done what he had done or anything else that would help investigators. The Coxes were devastated when they were told what had happened. They had warned Child Protective Services and the court that if pushed far enough, Josh was capable of being dangerous and he would potentially do something to hurt the boys. And the Coxes' worst fears had just come true. On Saturday, February 11th, the Cox family buried Charlie and Brayden in a single coffin so that they could remain together for eternity. Josh was never mentioned in the service, and any images of him were taken out of the photo tribute that was shown. They were buried at Woodbine Cemetery in Puyallup, Washington, next to an empty gravesite where their mother will be buried if her remains are ever recovered. The Coxes were adamant that Josh not be buried near the boys, and instead, Josh Powell was cremated and his remains went to his family. One year and a few days after Josh killed Charlie, Brayden, and himself, Josh's younger brother, Mike Powell, killed himself by jumping off of a seven-story building and landing on the sidewalk. He, too, left no suicide note or anything else that would help investigators who were still looking for Susan. But he must have felt the same feeling of pressure tightening that Josh had felt. The investigation into Susan's disappearance was focusing more and more on Mike, and just a few days before his suicide, a new tip had been called in about a several-acre property that the Powell family owned in Oregon that was previously not searched. Although a search of the property did not uncover Susan's body, the Coxes believe that she is likely buried somewhere on the land there. But to this day, her body has not been discovered. The lot where Josh Powell's rental home once stood remains empty today. The debris has been cleared, 
and nature has reclaimed that corner of the cul-de-sac. Thank you for listening to this Morbid Tourism episode about Josh Powell's rental house. If you like learning about morbid locations, subscribe to Morbid Tourism on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and leave a rating or review and let us know what you think. New episodes will be released weekly. Between episodes, you can visit morbidtourism.com to learn about more morbid locations. Follow us on Instagram at morbidtourism. This podcast is researched, hosted, produced, and edited by me, Jules Kruger. Sources for this episode include Wikipedia, the podcast Cold, and the book If I Can't Have You by Greg Olson and Rebecca Morris.